The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. Welcome to the Friday show. I have a few stories I want to run through before we move on to other things, including your questions. We talked last week about the continued possibility that Donald Trump will start his own political party. We also saw a poll showing that nearly two thirds of Republican voters are in theory willing to leave the Republican Party and follow Trump to a new party. Now, of course, if Donald Trump started a new party and forget about 64 percent, if Donald Trump Trump took 50 percent or 40 percent or even 30 percent of Republican voters to a new party, it could spell absolute disaster for the American right, splitting the vote and allowing uh, the Democratic Party to um, uh, win a lot, to take a phrase out of Donald Trump's uh, vocabulary. There's now another new story, and this is being reported by Reuters. There are dozens of former Republican officials who view the Republican Party as unwilling to stand up to Donald Trump. So this is an anti-Trump group of former Republican officials. And what these individuals are saying is if the Republican Party won't stand up to Trump and say, no, we reject Trumpism and we reject Trump, they are in discussions to break away from the Republican Party and start their own. And this includes former officials uh, in the Republican administrations, uh, Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, as well as even uh, disaffected Trump aides and staffers and uh, uh, political employees. This includes some ex-Republican ambassadors. This includes some Republican strategists and others. And 120 of them had a Zoom call, of course, last Friday to have a conversation about this. And the idea is they would say the Republican Party has become the party of Trump. We are getting back to principled conservatism, as they call it. What that means is pretending to care about the debt and deficit. Let's not mistake that for anything else. But it doesn't matter because, again, this could also be an absolute and total disaster uh, for the Republican Party. One of the people uh, involved is Evan McMullen. You might remember he ran third party in 2016, former uh, CIA uh, agent, I believe. And he is part of this movement for a possible splinter party. I have to tell you that this is fantastic news. Um, imagine if we got but these would be two gifts. If Donald you've got the Republican Party and within it, you have people who want to stick with Trump and people who want the Republican Party to completely denounce and distance from Donald Trump. You could have a situation where so-called principled conservatives in the Republican Party split off and start their own party to get away from Trump. And at the same time, Donald Trump starts his own party and takes the hyper pro Trump people away as well. So you could end up with the Trump party taking away from the Republican Party, the principled conservative former Republicans who are anti-Trump splitting off from the Republican Party. And then I guess what you'd have left in the Republican Party are just generally people not paying much attention or who don't don't uh, really feel strongly one way or the other. And they just want to keep voting for people like, I don't know, Lindsey Graham. Um, and then they stay and you could have a Republican Party split three ways. It I, I have no interest in giving advice to these folks about what they should do. Uh, I simply recognize the mathematical realities that even if Trump splits off and takes 15 percent of the party and these principled conservatives split off and take 10 or 15 percent of the party, uh, that creates a situation in which Republicans 
as we know them or in any of these new iterations don't win for a decade. And uh, if there would ever be an opportunity for the left to make progress in the United States, it would be that. Now, unfortunately, the Democratic Party has shown itself so often to be so incompetent that it would probably still end up being a challenge for a Democratic Party, given the gift of a Republican Party divided three ways. It would probably still end up being an uphill battle for the modern Democratic Party to make progress, but at least they'd have the opportunity. Uh, We'll follow it. Very, very interesting stuff. We have a new report out uh, that seeks to answer the question, how many coronavirus deaths can we really attribute to former President Donald Trump? And, uh, you know, one of the things we knew intuitively during the Trump presidency and which was confirmed a number of times by different studies was that no president could have predicted every coronavirus death. No president could have even uh, uh, prevented rather rather than predicted. Predicted is a different thing. No president could have prevented every coronavirus death. Uh, We were going to have many deaths as even countries that dealt with the virus well had many deaths. But the lack of taking the virus seriously by the Trump administration from day one certainly was at least partially responsible for some of the deaths. A new report now says that 40 percent of the deaths that took place in 2020 could have been avoided if Trump had merely handled the virus well enough for the U.S. to have the same not not number of cases, but mortality rate of other wealthy countries at our level of development. This study was published in The Lancet, one of the uh, oldest and best known medical journals, and it explains that um, the U.S. uh, had way more uh, deaths, a higher mortality rate during the pandemic than other rich countries, countries including um, the UK and a number of other countries, and that many of the cases and deaths were avoidable. They could have been avoided by uh, the federal government response being more serious from the beginning, rolling out testing earlier on, having stricter guidelines, or at least uh, making it clear that they should be enforced and that Donald Trump wanted to see those enforced. And unfortunately, some of these problems date back even before Donald Trump. Um, we know that the United States, when it comes to health care, even though we spend a ton of money on health care, we often have worse outcomes than many uh, other wealthy developed countries, uh, Germany, Canada, UK, so on and so forth. And so part of this is a bigger problem than Donald Trump. Um, A lot of our systems not interacting well, federal and state not interacting well, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, But then beyond that was the failed federal response from Donald Trump. And I think a lot of us intuitively understand this, the number of infections early, uh, the lack of uh, just being realistic, the lack of letting actual medical professionals guide the response. And as I've said before, um, if indeed Donald and we'll talk about this in a moment when we talk about Joe Biden's approval rating. If Donald Trump had simply said, what do doctors think we should do? What do public health experts think we should do? Epidemiologists, immunologists, people who know about this and aren't going to say things like, would the flu vaccine work against coronavirus as Donald Trump did back in? I don't remember if it was February or March. Many of these deaths would have been avoided. And we now know that beyond uh, any doubt whatsoever. And the question now becomes under new leadership, Can we do as well as other countries when it comes to vaccine distribution and lowering the mortality rate and keeping cases low if and when we get them low? So far, the numbers are cautiously optimistic. We had a couple days uh, in the last week 
where there were 2 million vaccinations done each day. If indeed we have a third vaccine approved sometime in the near future, as it looks like we will, it's not completely unreasonable to think that we could get to a steady two or 2.5 million vaccine doses per day. And uh, we, the, these are not, uh, you know, one of the, the saddest things that has taken place during the pandemic Obviously, the deaths and cases and economic imp- uh, implications and psychological impact for so many people ha- have been terrible. But one of the saddest things that that we've also seen uh, has been the realization that uh, the people in charge really do make a difference. Uh, what the politics are of your governor in dealing with the pandemic, it really makes a difference. Whether there is a competent federal government response really makes a difference. When you have people like Jared Kushner saying, well, the stockpile is our stockpile. It's not for the states. That's just not a disgusting political statement that you see on TV. That has a real trickle down impact. And hopefully we're going to see that improve. And it seems as though the American people are confident that it is improving uh, Joe Biden with the highest initial approval rating in 28 years. Let's talk about that now. Uh, This is very, very interesting. President Joe Biden is uh, currently uh, experiencing the highest initial approval rating of any president dating back 28 years to Bill Clinton in 1993. The uh, All America Economic Survey has found that Joe Biden has a 62 percent approval rating right now, his initial approval rating uh, that beats the first presidential rating of Barack Obama of George W. Bush, of Bill Clinton, and of course, of Donald Trump. And in fact, Joe Biden's initial rating of 62% approval is 18 points higher than that of Donald Trump. Uh, There are a number of takeaways here. First of all, when we uh, look at these numbers and understand that there are hyperpartisan enclaves of Americans that will either always approve or always disapprove of a president merely based on political party. You realize that the real range, it's not really zero to 100. It's probably more like, I don't know, 20 to 80 or 25 to 75 or whatever. So when you see a rating of 36, that is much closer to the bottom than it would seem because some portion will always approve of the president. When you see a number like 62, that's much closer to the top because because some portion will always disapprove. So number one, the difference between 62 and 36 is much bigger than merely the difference between the two numbers. When you understand American politics, that's number one. Number two important takeaway is that this really reinforces that Donald Trump could have easily won reelection if back in March he had simply said, this is serious. The doctors know what to do. Let's do what they say. Oh, they say wear masks. We are printing American flag masks. Do the patriotic thing. If Trump and his uh, um, staffers would were regularly pictured from the beginning with the patriotic American flag masks, I know that might violate flag code. OK, don't email me about that. Um, Donald Trump would have sailed to reelection, as we saw so many world leaders do who uh, dealt with the virus well. And that is confirmed by uh, this this polling. M- much of Joe Biden's early approval is based on his handling of the coronavirus, on which he has a nearly 70 percent approval rating. So Trump could be president right now. And it's because of Trump that he is not. We'll continue to follow Joe Biden's approval. Uh, it could go up. It could go down. I, I really don't know. These are unique circumstances in which we find ourselves. But I want to hear from you. Where do you believe Joe Biden's approval will go? 
and or does it depend on accomplishing something like, for example, getting the covid relief checks to Americans? I believe if he fails to do it, it will be a political disaster. But I do believe he is going to do it. Let me know your thoughts. I'm on Twitter at D Pacman. The David Pacman Show at davidpacman.com. I want to take a second to tell you about one of our sponsors, SNH Masks. SNH Masks has everything you need when it comes to face masks and other protective gear for COVID-19. And they're giving my audience 20% off. SNH Masks is the company that I've personally been going to for face masks. I love and trust the products they sell. And that's actually why I reached out to them about being a sponsor. I've tried tons of different face masks this year, like many of you. And I still have not found a mask that is more comfortable or easier to breathe in than the washable cotton masks that they sell. It's made of a silky lightweight cloth that feels great on the skin, has a convenient adjustable strap. They also have disposable cloth masks, which are really comfortable, as well as all of the other gear like face shields, alcohol wipes, no touch infrared thermometers. And all of their prices are very reasonable. I also love SNH masks because they've donated over 60,000 masks to healthcare institutions. They're an excellent company. Shipping is just five bucks and shipping is free on orders over one hundred and fifty dollars. You can get there by going to davidpackmancom slash mask. The link is in the podcast notes and you can save 20 percent on everything in their store when you use coupon code David. One of our sponsors is Privacy, a free service that protects your credit and debit card. I use Privacy every time I buy something online. I installed the app on my phone and the Privacy desktop browser extension. Now, when I pay for anything, Privacy autofills a virtual credit card number. The money's taken out of my bank account. I don't have to give out my real card number or banking info to anyone. You can create and delete the virtual cards anytime. I especially love it for free trials because I can destroy the virtual card number as soon as I give it to the company and I know I won't be charged in the future. Privacy also has a feature called shared cards, which makes it easy to split payments with friends. Parents can manage a virtual card for their kid with spending limits. Businesses can manage virtual cards for employees to use for company expenses. There are premium plans available, but privacy's regular service is totally free to use. And right now they'll give you five dollars just for signing up. When you go to privacy.com slash Pacman, you can find the link in the podcast notes. The David Pacman Show at davidpacman.com. Okay, let's hear from some folks in the audience taking calls via Discord at davidpackman.com slash Discord. Join the community on Discord. It's free. I think about um, 11,000 people now on the Discord, maybe approaching 12,000. It's a great thing. Uh, all right, let's see what's on people's minds, starting with uh, let's go to Grayson from Seattle. Grayson from Seattle, you're on the air. Hey, David, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Great. Um, so I was wondering what you think the future holds for conservative commentators like Stephen Crowder or centrist, and I have centrist in quotes, uh, commentators like Tim Pool. Uh, Crowder <laughs> especially was, was yes. pretty radio silent. And um, I was just wondering what kind of content can they even produce now that all their darlings are 
terrorist incitors or sympathizers. Wait, so you're saying Crowder has been radio silent? I didn't know that. Yeah, after January 6th, he was pretty silent, like a, like one or two low-effort tweets. I hmm. think he started doing his show recently again. I mean, I don't like watching it, so I haven't looked at it too much. But, I mean, I just don't know what kind of argument he has anymore, you know? It's, I, I mean, I know what the argument will be, and we're already, all you, all you have to do is look at Fox News and OAN and Newsmax to understand that there is still a very much alive uh, radical right sort of uh, perspective, and it includes going back to all of the tired old tropes. Uh, Laura Ingram did it on Fox News, I think it was Monday night, where she did, you know, this segment about the Biden insurrection, and he's welcoming dangerous, undocumented immigrants and brown people and all this stuff. And here's the thing. That may be so tired and boring to you and I who are now looking to see what will Joe Biden get done and can we start restoring the reputation of the country. But you can do really well uh, as an individual show or channel with a tiny slice of the American public because there's 331 million people in the country. So I think that they're going to do just fine. I mean, to people to people like us who now we just laugh when we see them go back to their same talking points. OK, we're not in their audience, but I think they're going to do fine. Yeah, fair enough. I think you're right. And then I had a quick Argentine lingo question, if you don't mind. Oh, sure. Argentine. Of course. So I've heard my Argentine friends say che boludo to each other. Right. Can I get away with saying that in a friendly way or is that a bit too aggressive to say to my friend? I think it's fine. I mean, it's so it's not you know, it's not a thing where you're just kind of saying kind of like, hey, you prick, you know, you're it's not uh, it's not racially discriminatory. It's not uh, you're not picking on any particular religion or anything like that. I think it's fine and it'll show you to be sort of like an insider to the lingo. I think you're you're fine with that. Perfect. Well, I think this might have been a perfect call. Thank this you was a time. perfect phone call. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, Grayson <laughs> from Seattle. Great to hear from you uh, and hope to hear from you again. Uh, why don't we talk next to Chris from Ocala? Is is it pronounced Ocala or Ocala, Florida? Hello? Yes, that's you. Hey, David, what's up? Yes, it's uh, Ocala, 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 Florida, about four away from uh, Orlando. Got it. What's going on? Not much. So uh, first off, I want to say thank you um, for everything you do, man. I mean, uh, beforehand, uh, before I even saw your show, I, I, I was having a bit of trouble finding any uh, left-leaning um, uh, talk shows. I, I feel like I've been more exposed to like the people like uh, uh, Ben Shapiro or Dave Rubin, and it was really hard finding the opposite. And when I uh, delve into your channel, I was able to uh, uh, completely switch my views on everything. I mean, what you wow. said made a lot of sense and everything. And uh, uh, I just want to say thank you for that. Um, uh, Pleasure. And I, I, I have a question about um, uh, Biden's age. Um, uh, the right has been pushing this propaganda that uh, he's too old and that Kamala Harris is going to take over and everything. And I know that's a bit of a stretch, but I mean, at the same time, I recognize that the guy is 78 years old. Um, should I be expecting that something could happen in the near future? I mean, I know that you said before that wealthier people tend to um, um, uh, live longer, like with Donald Trump. I mean, even though he's, uh, severely obese, I mean, the guy's a freaking whale. Um, uh, <laughs> he does have a lot of money, so it's expected that he'll live a rather long lifespan. Listen, um, person. 
Joe, so so you're absolutely right that class has a huge interaction with life expectancy in the United States, but I don't know that it's that different between multimillionaires and billionaires. So Joe, but from the standpoint of economic class, Joe Biden at this point is a uh, a wealthy guy, and I don't think that's really the issue. You do point out the risk factors. Uh, Donald Trump is uh, quite overweight. Joe Biden is not. Uh, Donald Trump uh, doesn't exercise. We regularly saw Joe Biden riding his bike. Uh, Donald Trump uh, is proud of eating an unhealthy diet. As far as I know, Biden's diet is healthier. But Biden is a few years older. Here's the reality. Um, When you look at actuarial tables for a 74 year old and a 78 year old, sure, the 78 year old on average is more likely to die in the next year than the 74 year old by a relatively small margin. Uh, But in both cases, you're talking about people who are in their mid to late 70s. So whatever concerns you had about Donald Trump along these lines uh, should be sort of similar about Joe Biden and that maybe the country would be better served having someone who's not in their mid to late 70s. But I don't know about, you know, if you were fine with Trump's age and health, I don't see it being dramatically different with Joe Biden. Right. Okay. So, I mean, real, like realistically speaking, I mean, I shouldn't really be expecting a President Harris anytime soon. Right. I mean, the guy's being taken care well of. Listen, he's getting the best health care anyone can get as president yeah. of the United States. And the, the problem is we can make assessments about what we expect from large populations. Making predictions about any one person's health is very difficult to do. And that that applies to any any individual. Right. OK. All know, right, Chris, I'm going to let you go that. because your, yeah. your phone won't stop buzzing in the background and it's kind of getting to be a little bit irritating to the audience. So we're going to we're going to go. But I really do appreciate hearing from you. Let's go next to Zaylor from Rhode Island. Zaylor from Rhode Island. You're on the air. Zaylor from Rhode hey. Island. Yes. Sorry. It took me a while to unmute myself. How are you doing today, David? I'm doing well. Thank you. So you did a video actually very recently about dog whistles and you discuss dog whistles used on the right and dog whistles that might be used as on the left and you mentioned that some of the leftist dog whistles are either boring or there's not too many of them um i i didn't see you mention though sometimes i feel like even the word use of the word elite can be considered a dog whistle by both the right and the left usually on the right it's referring to like their hatred of jewish people on the left, uh, the extremists sometimes just use it as like a catch-all for like capitalists, like um, just like capitalists in general. Uh, some of the more socialist types use it in that way. Uh, what do you think about that? I don't, you know. So I mean, you're certainly right that sometimes when the left uses the term elites, they're talking about economic elites, which applies to rich people and corporate CEOs and that type of thing. I guess I don't. I'm not saying I don't know that it's a dog whistle in the sense that everybody understands what they mean by that. One of the things about dog whistles is when you blow a dog whistle, the dog hears it, but you know humans right. don't really hear it. So I just would disagree that it's it's definitely a, a co- it's coded language, but it's coded language everybody seems to sort of understand. So I don't know that elites in that usage really counts as a dog whistle. Yeah, that makes sense, actually, That now that you mentioned that. Excellent. Well, that's really the only question I had prepared. So I just hope you're have. I hope you're doing well and keeping warm. Thank and, you. Uh, yes. 
Zaylor from Rhode Island. Appreciate the call. Remember, everybody, the lesson from uh, from Zaylor there is always make sure to set your discord to uh, silent or do not disturb or whatever it is so we don't hear those annoying noises. Let's go next to Sarah from one of my favorite cities in the world, Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Sarah, you're on the air. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay. Uh, so I guess I just wanted to know... Uh, what do you think about Canada designing the Proud Boys as a terrorist group? I think because uh, so, I haven't um, heard anything. Yeah, when I when I was asked about it last week, I, I obviously agreed colloquially, but I didn't understand what it meant legally speaking in Canada. And people have emailed me since and explained that uh, by designating it a, a, a terrorist group, it actually allows law enforcement uh, more mechanisms and leeway for um, uh, pr- pursuing and prosecuting the group and that it, it has legal significance in Canada. So I agree with it in the general sense, and it sounds like it will be useful to Canada as well. Yeah, do do you think there's going to be any similar things done like that in the States or you don't really think Uh, nothing's going to happen about that? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I mean, obviously, it's more likely that a Biden White House would push for designating the Proud Boys as a terrorist group than in a Trump White House. I don't know that it's a priority for the Biden White House to do that. Okay. Uh, Other follow up question, because they were talking about the martial law in the U.S. when the Capitol thing happened. Right. I don't, I don't know if you knew about the law of war. Is it the mesure de guerre? So it's like the uh, war measures were enacted in Quebec in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And the army took control of the country, uh, the province, because of like terrorist group, the FLQ. I don't know if you heard anything about that. I'm not familiar with that particular incident, but I've done some reading about instances, short term instances in many countries over the last 40, 50 years where there have been declarations where the military does take over. And and see, you know, one of the problems, Sarah, is that when we look at historical examples, there are many of historical examples of uh, martial law being declared by authoritarian dictators who want to remain in power. And then you also have examples where there was a legitimate use and reason for that declaration. And so you really have to look at the details of every situation. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, but anyways, I suggest you look into it. I know all the information is mostly in French. Yeah. There's like a bias between the two languages of how they interpret the events. Mm. But uh, if you have time. Uh, My French reading isn't bad. You know, sometimes when I watch a French show, I will watch it with the French subtitles. And that's actually enough for me to understand it. Okay, that's cool. Uh, yeah. But if ever Quebec is kind of the communist hellscape, the U.S. fears. Uh, so <laughs> I love Quebec. Uh, I have to tell you, it's so great there. It's such a it's it's the uh, it's such an, a European experience, you know. Yeah. Well, one day the borders will open again, and you can come over. <laughs> I would I would love to go. And so, are you? What general area in Montreal are you in? Uh, I'm in like the southwest. So it's like Verdun. So it's like very. Uh, working class kind of thing but um i'm kind of like the uh, i guess yuppie which is like i work in video games so i have a little bit of money but i'm still full of student debt so i live in a kind of working class neighborhood now southwest but, that's not like the atwater market right atwater market is more like uh, southeast. yeah yeah it's like close to that it's because montreal's directions are weird because the north is the north of the river but right not the true north so everything is really confusing for people. that there's a similar thing in <laughs> buenos aires where what seem oftentimes what is north on the map, the city is kind of rotated relative to the river. And so yeah. and in fact, Manhattan is the same thing. Oftentimes, Manhattan is portrayed as the avenues running perfectly north south. Uh, 
but that's just yeah. for visual aids. It's it's actually at an angle. That's interesting. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's a it's a weird things, and people get confused when they first come in. But Sarah, one more question for you: Have you ever yes. been to the Vietnamese food stall at the Atwater Market? Uh, I have not. Okay, uh, I, I highly recommend Atwater. it. I highly recommend it. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of great food in Montreal, so <laughs> there is. It's like a lot of food to eat. Um, but yeah. Thank you for taking my call. All right. My pleasure. Sarah from Montreal. Great to hear from you. We're going to take a very quick break. But if you're holding on to talk to me, don't hang up unless you're furious that I've not picked up your call already. But hang on because we're going to take a few more calls right after the break. The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. One of our sponsors is Magic Spoon, Magic Spoon breakfast cereal, sweet and delicious like the cereals you had as a kid without the sugar. Magic Spoon tastes exactly like the cereal brands we all know and loved as kids, but it has no sugar, only three net carbs and 13 grams of protein. Perfect for anyone following a keto or low carb diet or just anybody wanting to eat less sugar comes in frosted fruity cocoa and their all new flavor peanut butter. That's my favorite Magic Spoon flavor. Or you can get a variety pack so you can try all four. Magic Spoon is so confident in how delicious their cereal is. They'll give you all of your money back if you don't absolutely love it. They'll give you five dollars off when you go to magicspoon.com slash Pacman. That's magicspoon.com slash P-A-K-M-A-N. You can find the link in the podcast notes for this episode. One of our sponsors is Four Sigmatic, the company best known for their delicious mushroom coffee. Four Sigmatic's mushroom coffee is organic, fair trade, single origin Arabica coffee with both lion's mane and chaga mushrooms. Chaga mushrooms have actually been shown to have potential in supporting the immune system in peer reviewed studies. I've been drinking Four Sigmatic coffee a lot lately. It actually doesn't taste anything like mushrooms. It just tastes like any delicious coffee, but it's really easy on my stomach. Doesn't give me any jittery feeling or a midday crash. And they have over 20,000 five star reviews. And best of all, if you don't love it, you'll get 100 percent of your money back because they stand behind their product. You've got nothing to lose by giving it a try. Four Sigmatic is giving my audience up to 40% off and free shipping when you go to foursigmatic.com slash Pacman. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com slash P-A-K-M-A-N. The link is also in the podcast notes for this episode. Welcome back to the David Pakman Show. Okay, we're speaking to folks um, who presumably are fans of the show, although sometimes they're not, uh, via the David Pakman Show Discord, which you can find at uh, davidpakman.com slash discord. Let's go next to, uh, let's go to Irina. Irina from, uh, from where? From where? Irina, you're on the air. Zurich from Zurich. Wow. That's a, that's a perfect city. Europe. 
Yes. From Europe. Oh, Europe. I thought you said Zurich, Switzerland. Switzerland. Yes, that's right. Yes. Oh, you are in Switzerland. Okay. Uh, yes. Well, I didn't think I would have the chance to talk to you. Um, I'm very grateful for your um, comments that you give. Thank and, you. Um, and also, it's interesting to see the press briefings um, of the new president, Biden, and um, it's, it's, it's good to compare it. I'm not, yeah, that's, I'm very, it's, it's very informative and helpful. And often when I get angry, you, you make a good comment. So I'm <laughs> very glad to hear that. It's, it's very interesting. Irena, would you say that the opinion of the United States now that Trump has been removed and Joe Biden has been put in, is it improving? Is our reputation within Switzerland improving at all? Uh, I think so. I think so. Okay. I mean, um, of course, I I follow it. Uh, you know, I also listen to uh, Mr. Chomsky, Noam Chomsky, and mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I hope that the Biden administration will be more uh, more strong. Maybe, you know, maybe at this point they will really uh, just continue to do the things which are necessary for a humane, democratic society. Yes, and I hope so. And of course, here in Zurich, in Zurich um, the, the, this riot on the 6th of January had a repercussion that the crazy brother of a vegetarian um, chain, uh, Tibbetts, they have a brother and he, I don't know to whom he wrote, but it's written in our newspaper. Um, he wrote to a military officer to um, to uh, imprison the, our uh, federacy, federal government. Yes. Um, because of the, of the Corona measure, measures they took. And... Um, Yes, I mean, he was totally inspired. That was only a few days after the riots in the um, in Washington, D.C. And uh, <laughs> I was glad that, uh, I mean, here it counts as crazy. But, you know, <laughs> I think, um, I hope that uh, Trump will be um, uh, impeached and... Convicted, of that course. Yes, he has been impeached, but now the trial. Yeah, percussions. Yeah, he will. I mean, that he will re have a, a really that that it's clear he did a crime. Right. Be right. Because this will have repercussions to Europe. I, I am sure of it. We are so America centered that, um, you know, Europe is still very America centered still. I mean, no doubt about it. Irina, thank you so much for the call. I'm going to let you go because I have a lot of people waiting. Always of great course. to hear from our friends in Switzerland. Switzerland, one of my favorite, favorite countries. Let's speak next to uh, Radical Capitalist Jack. Radical Capitalist Jack, you are hey, uh, on the air. Yes. Just had uh, one question is, uh, do you think anything further is going to happen to uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene? Um, 
think she stands a chance getting removed from uh, her position or no? No, I don't think so. Uh, if you look in history at when uh, members of Congress have actually been expelled, it's been five. Uh, two of them were actually convicted of crimes, and that's why they got expelled. The other three were supporting the Confederacy in the Civil War. So it's it's I, I don't see it as likely. All right. Thank you. My pleasure. Okay, there we go. There is uh, there is Jack. Uh, radical capitalist Jack. Let's go next to Patrick from Vernon Hills. Patrick from Vernon Hills, you're on the air. Hey, David. How's it going? It's going well. Uh, I guess I have a question about can, where we go forward with our media ecosystem. I mm-hmm. read a book recently that looked at the historical effects of networks in society. Specific, A good parallel was when the printing press was created and then Christianity shattered into a thousand pieces and we had decades of war after that because everybody could read their own interpretation of the Bible instead of it all coming through the Catholic Church. And it feels now like media has been shattered into a thousand pieces and we all just get wherever we want and, you know, talking to conservatives, they don't even... They haven't even read the same stories I've read, and we're just operating from a completely different set of information. And we can't even talk about ideas. We're just talking about what's true and what's not true. You know, I love that you're bringing this up. I love that you're bringing this up because, um, you know, one of the things there was a very interesting discussion on the David Pakman show subreddit recently where someone posted uh, they, they did it in sort of an attack way, but I still appreciated it. They said, you know. Um, listening to the David Pakman show, watching the David Pakman show alone is not going to make you informed or educated or smart or whatever. And they meant it, I think, as an attack, but I don't see it. I agree with that. And one of the things that I have been talking about for a long time is um, my my hope with this show is not that people end up believing all the same things that I believe. And my hope is not that I become the sole source of commentary for people. What I hope to do with this show is to be part of the commentary diet and hopefully expose people to the importance of reading economics and reading history and reading sociology and philosophy. And one of the real concerns with a lot of this right wing drivel that's out there is the same thing we heard from Trump, which was only I can fix it. Only I tell you the truth. You're not being told the truth here or there. And this is fake news and that's fake news and and all of this stuff. What you're pointing out is maybe I don't know if you're deliberately pointing this out or not, but but I'm going to pretend you are because it's such a great point. It's really important for us to be consuming lots of writing that has sort of stood the test of time. Ideas and books that are still being read decades after they've been written, sometimes centuries after they've been written, you know, really long time. And Nassim uh, Nassim Taleb in The Black Swan and Anti-Fragile writes about this. You really want to be starting with your base, and that should be, you know, really reading texts of history, economics, philosophy, etc. Then on top of that, you place news, actual news reporting that's going on. And the top of the pyramid pyramid should be shows like mine, where I'm not giving you an opinion on an empty platform. Hopefully you are coming in with 
the base of the pyramid. And I'm just giving you my thoughts. And we all are sharing a lot of this information. Now, unfortunately, as you're pointing out, a lot of people come in and just listen to opinion shows and don't know history, economics, philosophy, science, et cetera. That's a problem. But but you're uh, I'm I'm off on a, on a rampage, but you're making a beautiful point. Yeah, I think that's um, not quite what I was getting at, but pretty close. Perfect. I, I like your <laughs> hierarchy of knowledge that you um, laid out there. Right. I'm just in a, a, a rear. I'm just concerned that, you know, people aren't doing that and they are yes. really getting their information from the top of the pyramid. They don't yep. have their base. That's your, no, no, your, your assessment is correct. I That's just, what's happening. And it's horrible. I yeah. can't talk to people cause I'm just, we, we, we don't even have a common set of facts to talk about. And I'm so frustrating just right. talking about, is this true or is this not true? I like climate change. I, you know, climate change is real. What do we do about it? But right. we're stuck on is climate change real? Yeah. And the interesting question is, well, what do we do about it? There's a lot of good ways. There's thousands of ways to solve the problem. But like Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, the first step is admitting you have a problem. You can't do anything until you get past that first step. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm I'm reading a Merchants of Doubt now about the industry of denying that tobacco smoke is harmful to health, denying that acid rain is bad, denying that there's climate change. And uh, there's entire industries based around furthering doubt about that. And so it's not uh, part of it is uh, uneducated people, but also part of it is very well-funded industries that want people to doubt the facts. Yep. All right. Thank you so much. I love your show. All right. Thank you. Great, great call. I appreciate it. Very, very important things being brought up. Let's go to Alex from Orange County. Alex from Orange County, you're on the air. Hey, David, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Awesome. So um, I remember you said every midterm election, if the the president wins, the opposing sides also win. why do you think that? No, happens? no, no. So that's that's not always the case, but that's it's often the case. Not always. OK. Um, is, is there a reason why that happens? Do people just stay home and assume, oh, we're all good or something like that? Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. So I think when when you have one party win a presidential election um, and then you have a midterm two years later, there's a couple different things that are going on. One in general, there's a lower turnout in midterms than there is in presidential elections. So by, by its very nature, that means that, uh, whoever is more motivated in the midterm has a better shot at being able to turn the election in their favor. And, uh, what motivates people to get out and vote? Well, it's their opponent winning. So when you see one party win in a presidential, it will often be more motivational to the opponents of that, uh, a person to the, the, the members of the party that is in opposition position to the winner of the White House. And so you'll see them come out in larger numbers in the following midterms. That's typically the way it goes. I don't know that that's the way 2022 will go, though. Um, um, OK, uh, um, can I ask you one more thing? Of course. Um, um, after the 2020 elections, do you trust um, poly data at all, even though like it really felt like um, Joe Biden really had this in the bag, but we were all pretty nervous, you know, when election day happened. I mean, listen, um, the the not the, the the polling data certainly was skewed more in the Biden direction than what ended up being the actual outcome. Now, Joe Biden was projected to win the popular vote and he did. And Joe Biden was projected to win the electoral vote, and he did. But there's no denying that the margin was not what many expected it to be, including in states like Wisconsin, as as an example. So 
you know, the trusting polling data is very black and white. I think we have to understand the limitations of polling, but at the same time, understand that um, uh, it's uh, it, it is not as precise, precise as many of us would want. And as I spoke about with David Shore not long ago, he pointed out that the idea of we now have such politicization of polling that there are certain populations that will respond to polling in a certain way and that can skew the results. We have to be we have to account for that. That's a real thing. Oh, OK, well, um, that'll be all, David. And thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. Great to hear from you. Really appreciate it. Uh, and then why don't we talk to uh, how about we speak to Antonioni from Chicago. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Hey, can you hear me, David? Yes, I can. Yeah, no, that's that's correct pronunciation. Love it. Um, big fan of the show. Thanks for taking the call. Thank you. So most of what I have to ask is about um, COVID relief and budget reconciliation. Okay. I kind of, okay, so I guess I need to refresh a little bit on the current current status and the next action step. So Right now, we're trying to pass COVID relief through budget reconciliation. Yes. Which that passed the House, correct? Uh, yes, it did. Now, you know, now you have me doubting where it stands right now. Yeah, it yeah. passed. It and passed I didn't the mean house. to put you on, on spot here because I realized there's so much going on yeah. and there is always a new update. So, like, if you don't know one of these questions, like, I totally get it. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not changing. up to speed as to it. I know that Democrats believe they need to move forward without Republicans. And that that clearly is the case. I actually am unsure where the bill is right now. Yeah, I don't know if it passed the House or not because... I thought it did. And then there was still debate, you know, about yeah. the income threshold that who's going to get the, uh, you know, the relief. Indeed. So I was like, OK, maybe it didn't pass the house. Um, anyway, so I guess what I'm going to is I really wanted to know your opinion on do you think reoccurring relief is even going to be a thing or is this going to be one of the I mean, if you had a guess, I know it's really hard. We're in a pandemic. You don't yeah. know how this is going to play out, but. We're seeing how long this process takes, and it's—I guess it's not too long. You know, it's expectable. It's been a month, like since Biden's came into office, um, but it's for that fourteen hundred, and you know, and there's some progressives fighting for two thousand dollars reoccurring, and I just don't like how long is like what's going to be the process for that? Because I know we have to get this fourteen hundred yeah. through through budget reconciliation. So, what would the process then be? to get another 2000. You're, you're exactly right. Uh, I, I hate to rain on anybody's parade. I don't think recurring payments are going to happen. And uh, yeah. there are people that love the idea of sort of like pandemic basic income in a sense. Um, mm -hmm. If things uh, particularly, it, it, as you're pointing out, it's a lot of work just to get this $1,400 done. And yeah. I hope that we, we start to recover from the pandemic, both from a health standpoint and an economic standpoint. And if that happens, uh, I don't know. I don't even think that you're going to have Republic uh, Democrats in the Senate going for recurring payments. So I, I want to be as real with the audience as I can. I don't see it. I don't see it happening. I don't see it either. And I, no, I agree. Yeah. Um, and, do, and I guess one of the last questions that has to still do with this is there's there's all this talk about, you know, there's a lot of Democrats were fighting to lower that threshold to 50K yes. um, for the relief. Do we, who, who are they? Cause I, I, Joe Manchin is kind of like, you know, the mascot for them, but I don't know who the other ones are. And I guess they're not, 
they're they're going anonymous. Is that seem to be what the issue is? I don't have the list in front of me, but this is exactly what we were talking about when Joe Biden won, where we were saying, you know, if we're assuming everything will be 50 50 and then Kamala gets it through, we're forgetting that there are occasionally Democrats who don't just sign their names to what Joe Biden wants or to what the bulk of the Democrats in the Senate want. And and we are seeing that. Yeah, I'm again, obviously I just I don't know that it needs to be said. I'm against lowering the threshold to 50,000. Yeah. OK, I mean, that, that's it. And I, um, you know, I hope I saw how like Kamala was interviewing with, you know, the newspaper where Joe Manchin's from or whatever, trying yeah. to push him to get that through. And I I hope there's more tactics like that to push these um, people that are more center to the left and this time. Certainly. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much for taking the call. I appreciate it. All right. Antonioni from Chicago. Great to hear from you. Uh, we're going to go to a break. Sorry, I wasn't able to get to everybody. I do my best, but I can never get to everybody. Uh, there's always more. We will take a quick break and be back with more right after this. The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. One of our sponsors today is Lucy, and they are giving my audience 20 percent off. Lucy is a company founded by Caltech scientists with only one mission, which is to help people quit smoking and vaping by offering a clean, affordable nicotine alternative. Now, many of you know, you've heard the stories. I've known several people in my life who have struggled with quitting smoking. I've seen how difficult it can be. And nicotine alternatives can be hugely helpful. Lucy offers a nicotine gum in three flavors, wintergreen, cinnamon and pomegranate. They also have lozenges which come in cherry ice flavor. Lucy is affordable. It'll ship right to your door. You don't have to go out to the store. Shipping is always free. You can buy single boxes or save with a subscription. It's time to throw the cigarettes away and get rid of the vape. And Lucy can make it easier. You'll find a ton of excellent reviews online from countless people who have used Lucy to quit smoking and vaping. Go check them out at Lucy.co. That's L U C Y dot co. The URL is in the podcast notes, and you will get 20% off when you use the coupon code Pacman. Quick disclaimer I'm required to give these products contain nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. All right, let's get to uh, audience questions for the week. First one, uh, increasingly relevant as the vaccine rollout continues and vaccines are made avail available to more and more Americans. David, do you know people personally who are refusing to get the coronavirus vaccine? You know, I do. And the, the I don't really know conspiracy theory types personally who are saying, oh, it'll alter your DNA or you're going to get microchipped by the vaccine. I know that a lot of people believe that because I've seen the data, I've seen the surveys, but I don't know any of those folks personally. What I'm seeing mostly in the people I know uh, who are saying they're not not planning to get vaccinated, or at least not for now, um, is lack of information. They're just ignorant to the fact. So like as one example, a friend of mine a couple of weeks ago said, um, I'm not going to uh, I'm not even going to think about getting a vaccine until they do the phase three trials. And I explained to him for the approved vaccines, phase three trials have been done. I mean, if it, the phase three trials 
have been done for months. And uh, we got that data in November, December, and it was reviewed by the FDA. And then an emergency use authorization was put forward. And he said, really? Oh, I didn't know. And I said, yeah, I mean, that you you need the phase three data. There was a discussion last summer about do we not do we do an emergency use order before finishing phase three if the data looks good? It wasn't done. Phase three has been done. And once I explained that to him, he said, oh, well, I guess I'll look into it. Now, what was really kind of scary is he works in the healthcare field. And we've we've read about um, a number of a significant portion of, of nurses and others working in the healthcare field who are saying, I'm not going to get the vaccine. So that's some some folks that I'm hearing from uh, who say they're not going to get it. It's something like that. They don't think it's been approved. They don't think phase three is done or whatever the case may be. But uh, phase three is done and there is an emergency use authorization. The other people that I personally know who are, are you know, refusing is a weird term now because most of them aren't yet eligible but who are telling me they don't uh, plan to get a vaccine um, is that they're sort of saying it as from a libertarian perspective, like they're against forced vaccination. And I kind of point out to them, if you're opting not to get it, clearly you're not forced. And then this gets into this weird discussion about, well, if in order to fly, you are required to have it, you are being forced to get it. And I I try to explain there's a difference between mandatory and required for certain activities. And I end up kind of coming back to the same place from this libertarian perspective, which is as a libertarian, do you respect the right of just hypothetically Delta Airlines to say we require people who want to fly with us to present proof of vaccination after a certain date? And they end up usually in a pretzel of some kind where they are uber libertarians who think businesses shouldn't be regulated. They should be allowed to do whatever they want. And yet somehow they want to be able to decide what Delta's policy should be. And if they want to fly without a vaccine, they should be allowed to. You've got to you've got to be a little more consistent here. And um, there is not going to be a, a mandatory vaccination from the government. There's no legal basis to do that. But that being said, there are all sorts of different institutions that might say, if you want to choose to avail yourself of our product or service or to do business with us, uh, one of our requirements is that you be vaccinated. And um, this is not legally uh, problematic. This is not constitutionally an issue, et cetera. Now, in terms of the number of people remaining in the U.S. who don't plan to get the vaccine, I don't know whether to say we're in a good place or we're not in a good place. There was a point months and months ago, where more than half the country uh, said they did not plan to get a coronavirus vaccine. That number is down to about a third of the country, and it continues to go down. It's good that the percentage of people who don't plan to get it has basically dropped by half. The concerning part is that I don't know that with two thirds of adult getting the vaccine, two thirds of adults getting it and one third not that we're going to reach herd immunity. And that's really the concern at this point. Dr. Fauci and others have said, in particular, since we're not going to be vaccinating kids in in the immediate, uh, we need close to all adults to get the vaccine, particularly with these more transmissible variants to really have herd immunity and protection. So the there's good news here, which is vaccine hesitancy is declining. The bad news is there's still a lot of people, including otherwise uh, educated individuals who think everything from the vaccine will alter your DNA to it'll allow the government to track you. Oh, 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 which reminds me, 
there is one acquaintance. This is not a friend, but it's an acquaintance who posted to Facebook not long ago. Uh, I have some reasonable concerns about the vaccine. I'm not saying I'm not going to get it, but I, I do believe this, that and that it could be used to track my location. And a lot of our shared friends started trying to talk her off the ledge. I just had to unfriend. I, it's just I can't do it, guys. I can't do it. And I know many of you have uh, come up against the same situation. OK, next question today. David, can Democrats add Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. as states without Republican involvement? So there, there's two answers to this. Legally speaking, constitutionally speaking, admitting a new state is not a legislative matter. So the legislative filibuster that is possible in the Senate on some issues should not actually apply. And as the week uh, recently published in recent years, both Democrats and Republicans have in effect agreed the filibuster shouldn't apply to certain constitutional matters not covered by Article one, which lays out the design of Congress and its legislative powers. The admission of new states is not part of Article one, and it's something distinct. And as a result, in theory, Democrats don't need Republicans to make Washington, D.C. or Puerto Rico states. Now, historically, this is a different matter. Um, The idea from the framers appears to be they clearly designated the addition of states as not requiring a super majority. Um, But at the same time, it is not particularly likely that from a practical political standpoint, Democrats would go it completely alone. And from the people I've spoken to that are aides to elected officials, there's the belief that it is if it is not bipartisan to some degree um, that it would uh, be unlikely to happen. And so uh, although from a very fundamental legal standpoint, Democrats could say we are voting to make D.C. a state. And it could be 50 50 in the Senate. And then Kamala Harris could cast the deciding vote. That certainly could be done. Uh, I have not spoken to anyone who thinks that it's going to actually be done that way. And that more than likely, if Democrats were dead set on making D.C. and or Puerto Rico states, even if Republicans weren't uh, thrilled with it, that there would be some kind of negotiation where uh, Republicans would get something. Now, what that something is, I don't actually know. One other thought on this. I don't know for sure that every Democrat in the Senate in the absence of some Republicans who want to make D.C. and or Puerto Rico states, I don't know that every Democratic senator would actually go for it. So there's actually a question as to whether you get to 50 50. Um, Would Joe Manchin uh, vote to make Puerto Rico and D.C. and or D.C. states if not a single Republican in the Senate plans to do it? I don't know the answer to that. And there is the feeling that there are at least one or two Democratic senators who without some Republican support for the additional states uh, would not go for it. The real question to me is, are we ever going to find out the answer to this? Is this actually going to be something Democrats try to do in the next two years as they control the White House, the House and the Senate? I wish I could say yes. It's not completely clear to me. Hey, David, uh, I'm in I'm from Australia and I'm trying to figure out why so many Americans do not vote. Isn't it obvious that it is just the fundamental basic participation in your democracy and that it is the starting point for all political involvement? Yes. Uh, Yes, I you know, for me, I have said many times, I don't believe in this stuff of if you don't vote, you don't get to complain. 
that seems kind of silly and and reductive. Uh, but I do think that anybody who cares at all about the country they live in should, as a minimum, be voting in addition to whatever else they are doing. Now, the question of why more people don't vote is a good question. It's easy to say, well, more people don't vote because it's not mandatory. That's not what what I think is really the interesting part. The more interesting part to me is what are the reasons that people choose not to vote? And there's a very interesting study of non voters, and you can find this on the 538 website. Um, and it looked at why voters versus non voters uh, end up not voting. Rather, it compared the reasons that people who never vote don't vote versus the reasons that people who sometimes vote don't end up voting. Uh, one of the reasons that non-voters choose never to vote is they believe that it doesn't matter who wins. Nothing will change for people like them. And unfortunately, this is one of those kind of fallacious beliefs. You know, we hear this idea that sometimes people will say elections really never come down to one vote. So therefore, my vote doesn't matter. So I'm going to stay home. And while it's true that elections rarely come down to one vote, particularly national elections, um, if everybody who had that thought occur to them, stayed home or voted, then you actually would be able to change the outcomes and maybe influence uh, what your day to day life is like. So that that's a really unfortunate one. One of the reasons it feels like things don't change is so many people aren't voting. If everybody was voting, things would actually change. Um, another uh, reason that non-voters often don't vote is they believe the system is too broken to be fixed by voting. That's sort of a version of the same thing. Um, and then um, some folks who believe that because of where they live, their vote doesn't matter, which is a direct um, uh, uh, critique of the Electoral College. And then lastly, one of the reasons that a lot of non-voters cite for not voting is they're not sure if they can vote, which is really just depressing. Um, there are situations in which you would not be allowed to vote because of a criminal conviction. And we know that that's being dealt with at the state level in a variety of, of different states. But um, other than not knowing if you are registered or knowing when you can register, I mean, it, the idea that people don't vote because they're not sure if they can vote, that's a failure of the system for sure. And then you have to look at which party has an interest in, in reducing voter turnout. And of course, we know that it's been the Republican Party. We know that the Republican Party has uh, covertly been uh, working on reducing turnout for decades and overtly doing it for at least 10 or 12 years. Uh, check out the Mike Terzai video back in 2012, I believe it is, where he openly says voter ID is going to deliver Pennsylvania to Mitt Romney. So that's just a depressing reality. Now, we could solve a lot of these problems if we eliminate this idea of voter registration. If it's simply you turn 18 and you're a citizen, you can vote. You don't need to register. That resolves a lot of the issue as to whether one is allowed to vote. That should be done. Um, if we uh, uh, deal with this issue of uh, have I been purged or do I need ID or not or all of these things, they when we talk about voter, there's a reason it's called voter suppression. It really does suppress the vote. Um, and then, of course, people feeling like the system is broken. I mean, to some degree, I sympathize with them. Uh, and at the same time, I recognize that the, the lower participation is in elections, the more broken it's going to be, the more the system will be representative of those who choose to vote. So the voting voting is is just the starting point. I get that voting isn't everything, but it is depressing when I see, you know, 52 percent turnout 
Uh, fortunately, we were over 60 percent this November, but this is a real problem in the United States. I don't know that you really solve it in a deep way simply by making voting mandatory. My birth country of Argentina has mandatory voting. Uh, I don't know that it in itself gives us less corrupt outcomes, uh, but that's a bigger issue and probably one for a different day. We've got a great bonus show for you today. Uh, get instant access by becoming a member at joinpacman.com. 